The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, everyone. Today, we are talking geothermal energy with our guest, Josh Nordquist. Josh is the Director of Resource Operations at Ormat Technologies, Inc., Ormat is a global geothermal developer based out of Reno, Nevada, whose clean energy portfolio consists mostly of geothermal, but also includes recovered energy generation, solar, and storage. While at Ormat, Josh has assumed a number of roles focused on the development of geothermal projects around the world and currently oversees the performance and sustainability of the company's operating geothermal resources. In addition, Josh serves on the board of Geothermal Rising, the nation's geothermal industry organization, and as a commissioner for the Nevada's Commission on Mineral Resources. So without further ado, let's welcome Josh. Hey, Josh. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me today. I'm really interested to learn about geothermal, right? Because geothermal is something that if you've been around the energy industry for a while, you definitely have heard about it. It's, you know, it's, it's definitely been something that people have been talking about. It's getting a lot more traction these days. And you even hear about, you know, other parts of the energy, energy industry talking about it, like the oil and gas part of energy, talking about geothermal, right? So if you wouldn't mind, because you've got so much experience in the industry, could you give me just, you know, the basics of geothermal energy? Absolutely, Jose. It, again, a pleasure to be on today. I am a self-confessed geothermal addict. I've been working in the industry for about 13 years now, and and I've grown a passion about it. So, you know, geothermal, by the essence of it, is simple in the two parts of it. Geothermal is is heat from the earth, and it's used in many ways. In fact, there's two gener, general industries that we use it in today. Electricity production, which is where most of my field is, and then heat production. So heat for heating homes or or melting snow or heating buildings. And it's used almost throughout the whole U.S. today in this kind of residential and commercial format. In my industry, we use it for electricity production, for 24-7 power generation, and most of that today is in the western U.S. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned location, right? Where else is geothermal found? So, of course, U.S. is popular, is very popular, but it's been a worldwide thing for centuries. In fact, I don't have the exact date in mind, but the Italians are really the first to, to take geothermal to the energy industry, I want to say almost 150 years ago. Someone will correct okay. me, I'm sure. But the, something like that, to use it for, to use it for you know, steam generation, for steam engines. And then as power generation came along, it actually has been used for power generation for, for almost as long as power generation has been out there in certain regions. So other regions of the world, Europe and Italy, it's been very hugely popular over centuries. Today, there's a lot of emerging markets in geothermal. Turkey is a, a large emerging market. Indonesia and a few other Asian countries are starting to tap into that. Africa has got a number of countries with known reservoirs that are being used and growing today. 
in South America. Chile is now building their second geothermal plant ever, which is a huge accomplishment for that country who, who sits on a uh, huge range of mountains, which is our typical location for geothermal. That's interesting. And so, you know, you mentioned like, you know, they're building facilities. What kind of, I know that there's different types, right? You have, I want to say there's flash steam and dry steam and, and, and different types, right? Can you sort of give us an idea of what those are about? Like, you know, kind of explain them to us. Absolutely. I th- you've been doing your homework. I really much appreciate that. You know, flash steam and, and dry steam, these type of plants are very similar to power plants that we know today. Very similar to our, our coal-fired power plants or our nuclear power plants where they take steam generated from the earth, from, from wells, and they use them direct, to directly drive a turbine in a generator. It essentially runs in the, in the same type of setup. These systems have been around for, well, geez, maybe 50, 60 years now and very popular. But today, really the most growing technology used today is what we call, it has a couple of terms, binary systems or organic rank and cycle systems. And these are okay. kind of the new and up, upcoming type of systems out today, the, the new tech. Okay. I guess give us an idea of what this new technology is like, because it sounds like something that you're pretty interested in. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, the company I work for, Ormat, is really what has commercialized this technology you know, somewhat 60 years ago now. And what it is, is, is quite simple. It works the same way as a refrigerator or an air conditioning system in the sense that it transfers heat from something, it being geothermal fluid, to another fluid. Whereas in a refrigerator, it's a freon. Freon's not the right term today. That one's not allowed anymore. Is there something wrong with a refrigerant so you can't use Freon anymore? Yeah, Freon technically is not healthy for the environment anymore. It, de- it depletes the ozone layer, contributes to, to ah. ozone depletion. Instead, they're using much more complicated, well, much more advanced refrigerants in these types of machinery. So anyways, what we do is we transfer the heat from the geothermal into this refrigerant. And in our cases, we use hydrocarbons. We use pentanes, butanes, these type of hydrocarbons. And instead of then generating kind of a of water steam, which is what you'd see in, in flash plants that we just mentioned, we generate a vapor, which is these hydrocarbons, boiling them and generating a vapor that that vapor can drive a turbine and a generator. And the unique part about it, the beneficial part about it, is that none of it escapes into the atmosphere. So in this situation, the va- and sorry if this gets a little complicated and ask more questions as we go. But the hydrocarbon vaporizes, drives a turbine and generator, generates power, and then we cool it, we condense it back into a liquid and use it inside the system. So it never leaves. It stays inside inside the power plant, inside the pipes, and none of it is emitted into the atmosphere. And the same thing happens with the geothermal fluid. We produce it from the ground, we extract some heat from it, and we re-inject it 100% back into the ground. So... I guess the part that sort of is helping ours, you're reducing the loss of energy, right? So you're you're not losing any of the heat, unlike some of the older systems that they eventually like do let off heat or they do release some heat. So they don't use the entire part of the heat being brought, brought back, right? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're exactly touching on it, which is with the binary systems, they are not removing any mass from underground. Whatever is being produced, like however many gallons per minute or however much volume is being produced from the earth is going back into the earth to get reheated. All we extract is the heat. We reduce the temperature of it. We, you know, we reduce the temperature from, say, 350 degrees Fahrenheit 
down to 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. But all the volume goes back in to be uh, reheated. This is the most sustainable the most sustainable design for a geothermal system. This is what makes it absolutely the most the most sustainable. I'm curious because obviously dealing with you know, pretty extreme temperatures is something that most people who drill oil and gas wells are pretty accustomed to. They run across this all the time. And I'm sort of curious because I read something that I thought about kind of resonated with me a little bit was the idea of potentially repurposing old wells to run geothermal, right? To try and extract the heat using geothermal techniques. Is that something that you've been aware of? Or do you think, is that something that would actually happen? Or how would that work? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, first to start off on the temperature side, you know, in geothermal, we're looking for pretty hot temperatures. You know, I would say, I think on on the books, our hottest production temperature is 200 C or, or 400 degrees Fahrenheit of fluid from the earth. And that's hot, even for oil and gas standards. But we're also using a much cooler temperature fluid. So in Nevada, exactly, we have power plants running off of 260 degree Fahrenheit fluid, which is very, very similar to what's being produced, say, in oil wells, in oil wells in Texas, even. You touched on it, in fact, 12 years ago when I started, one of my first assignments was to look into the availability of repurposed oil wells for geothermal production. That's a very interesting subject. Yeah, I saw an article and it was a little bit older and I think it might have been right around that time frame that you talked about it because I was just kind of cross-referencing oil and gas and geothermal because I'd like to have you, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of touch on some of the skills and, and some of the transferable skills between the two that are, you know, making some parallels. Or can, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So we have, I mean, we're very similar as far as what we do as an industry. We explore and so we have the same, the same types of teams of geologists and geophysicists in our group. We also have drilling engineers. We, we, we drill our own wells. We have our own drilling rigs and crews. So we use the same types of crews, roughnecks, mud loggers, any type of, any, any type of service associated with drilling is the same. And then when it comes to kind of a well that's completed and running, we have reservoir engineers and production engineers, just like oil and gas does that to maintain our fields, to make sure that they're running as expected. Of course, the next level is the facilities, which is we have power plants. So where, you know, downstream, and forgive me if I use the terms wrong, but the, you know, downstream facilities, processing facilities are somewhat similar in the fact that we have the similar type of industrial complexes that we build, but then we're focused on power generation. And that's where, I guess that's where maybe things start to separate a bit. That's interesting. What was it about the geothermal part of energy that attracted you to pursue a career there? So this is, I think is a funny story. This will, uh, this will put me in a different spot, but I left uh, graduate school. I finished graduate school with the master's in biomechanical engineering. And I was working in the, the snow sport industry and then a little stint in, in the medical industry. And I drove by, I drove by a geothermal plant every day, pretty much outside of Reno, Nevada, where I, where I call home. And I had no idea what it was. Zero. I actually thought it was an oil and gas facility of some sorts. And no <laughs> idea. And then one day a friend of mine decided, said, you should come talk to, come meet with the president of this company and see if you may be interested in working for us. And again, 12 years ago, I sat down with the president of the company at the time. And I, of course, did my research before I sat down for such a meeting. But that's where it started to hit me the bug. I couldn't believe that this is what was going on at this place I drove by every time, which, you know, all you see is, heat exchangers and pipes 
everywhere. And then the first day on the job, when I was walking around this, this geothermal plant where we had, we had hot brine produced in, in wells, we had a power plant running that was providing, you know, enough power for 250,000 homes in the area. And then it's simply running every day, 24 seven. And it's happening. It just, it kind of blew my mind at the time and it has kept me in ever since. So, you know, that was, that was the story of how you got in there. Now that you've been in, talk a little bit about some of the associations or organizations that are available to professionals in the industry. I know like in oil and gas, we have, you know, things like SPE and stuff like that. I'm sure you guys have equivalents. Can you talk about some of those and, and maybe like maybe some of your experiences with those organizations? So like oil and gas, we have a lot of passionate people in our industry and, and they're centered in two main organizations throughout the world. First one is based in the U.S. It's called Geothermal Rising, recently rebranded. And that can be found at, at www.geothermal.org. And the second one, which is more, in, more international focused, is called the International Geothermal Association. And that is geothermal-energy.org. What's been some of your experience with those organizations? So they're great. I have been a part of both organizations for, well, since I started 12 years ago. In fact, I've had leadership roles in, in these organizations, and, and there used to be a third one actually too, but I've been sitting on the board and working and helping on the board for Geothermal Rising for about almost four years now, because this is my fourth year. And we're you know, in direct links with the International Geothermal Association. We put on conferences as together once a year in the US and, and every three years internationally. And I mean, I'm sure that there's a, a broad range of subjects that you guys cover during, you know, like talks of, during the uh, conferences. But what's something like I know for an oil and gas conference, I know I, si- I typically have a general idea of like there's going to be some keynote speakers who are executives from some of the top, you know, companies and service companies. And then there's going to be some papers presented. And then obviously we're going to have vendors and you know, there's going to be a lot of exhibits and stuff like that. Is that something similar or how would that be structured at one of these events? It's actually very similar. I'd say very similar, just not as big. Okay. You're being much smaller, I think, in size, but very similarly structured. You know, we look at every year we're looking at both the research, the development and the progress that the industry is making from, you know, whether it's new projects coming online for us, you know, for the geothermal industry, a new project for us is, you know, not just drilling wells, but drilling wells and a power, building a power plan and, and bringing it online, as well as talking about new research that's happening. We've always been intimately focused on, on drilling activities and how to advance drilling activities. And a lot of times learning from the oil and gas industry, which is much larger and has many more resources than we do, I'd say. <laughs> what would you say? I mean, that sort of brings me to the idea and the topic of, you know, challenges that you guys are facing in geothermal. What would you say are some of the challenges that, you know, are facing that industry or the part of this in- energy industry? Yeah, I think a lot of our knowledge interest is in both the drilling and the operation of wells. So very similar. For drilling, you know, we are always looking on how to make drilling more efficient and faster which in a sense reduces costs. There's an analogy I like to use, and I'll throw it at you too. I like to use a lot of people. And I think it hits home pretty well. So you can tell me if you agree. So when we drill for oil, we, we produce barrels of oil and each barrel is worth whatever it is on the market that day, relatively speaking. So let's say the barrel's worth 60 bucks. When we do the same thing, we drill wells, we produce this hot fluid. That same barrel of hot fluid, instead of selling for 60 bucks, we have, we have to convert it to electricity and we sell it for six cents. 
So we said we saw six cents of electricity for every barrel of produced fluid. Now that may seem initially like, well, wait a second, you know, where's the money coming from? That's usually why I use the analogy. But my response is always that, you know, we get that six cents every barrel every day for 20 years, guaranteed. No market volatility, no ups and downs, no concern about the next day. We get six cents and we'll get it for 20 years and then we'll renew the contract and get it for another 20 years and then another 20 years. And it's, it's electricity production. It's different, but it's a different market. What are the initiatives being driven right now in geothermal and what do those timeframes look like? I mean, is there an initiative say by X year, we want to be producing this much or by this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because we're an energy producer, most of our incentives, we'll call it, are focused on the renewable industries. And they vary from individual states who will set up their own renewable portfolio standards per state where they they may generate a goal, like California, for example, a goal of 50% renewable energy production by 2030 or 2050. I can't remember which number it was. And a lot of states, a lot of states all across the U.S. today have goals like that that are set. And most of that is the big driver because that means those goals for the state drive the the sale of electricity for those that deal in that business. So utilities or other power organizations need to go and find a plan to buy that energy by that certain time period. And that's a big driver. I can't help but bring in a bit of the market drivers that we deal with, which is, of course, the cost of energy, the price of energy. It's very interesting. And and this is also one of the things that's really captured me in this industry is understanding the power industry, understanding the market drivers and the internal and external effects of, of selling power. Today, the biggest impacts on power sales, renewable or other, are, are natural gas and solar, essentially. And this is especially definitive in the Western, the Western U.S., where solar prices are extremely low. You know, solar can sell at, at single-digit cents per kilowatt hour. And natural gas prices are also very low because of high market availability, high volume availability. And this is keeping the electricity price low. So when I say electricity price low too, it's, it's of course, all, all relative. You know, you're, you're in Texas. So in fact, actually, I thought I had it in my mind, but I don't even want to state what the, like, the average electricity price is in Texas. I think, it's, I think it's relatively low, but let's say it's 15 cents a kilowatt hour. In California, it's 30 cents a kilowatt hour. And in Nevada, in Nevada where I'm at, it's 10 cents a kilowatt hour. And the electricity prices per state and even inside the state can vary widely depending on what state you're at. In you know, New York state, it might be 40 cents a kilowatt hour. And the utilities that buy all this power are always looking for the cheapest, you know, the cheapest energy. It's very similar to any market condition. And those choices drive, drive huge decisions down the road as far as what type of power you're going to buy and when you're going to buy it. I guess that, maybe that's the, the shortest, longest answer. <laughs> Out of all of the countries that are producing geothermal, which ones would you say are A, leading the way, and B, who are the new emerging players? So there's no doubt in my mind that the the U.S. is still the most advanced and successful country when it comes to geothermal development and operation, as far as having the most amount of operating geothermal plants and the most development occurring. But outside the U.S., there's a number of countries that are really making big splashes. And I mentioned at least most of them earlier. 
first one I'd mention is, is in Indonesia. Indonesia has a long history of geothermal, actually a long history of, of oil and gas involvement in geothermal. They're in Indonesia, Chevron owned and operated geothermal plants for, for many, many years and is now kind of had a resurgence for geothermal energy. So there's a number of projects active today and being an island nation that Indonesia is, it has phenomenal resources. It's, it's located on the Ring of Fire around the Pacific Ocean. It's got known high temperature, high production resources and is in a, a massive growth state today. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember, you know, certain projects, oil and gas projects happening in Indonesia, you know, for pretty long periods of time and and definitely understanding some people that have even gone from the U.S. to work as expats in Indonesia because there are so many opportunities to work in the industry out there. So that's really, really interesting. You know, just sort of looking at it as another point of view, what environmental impacts are taken in consideration when we're thinking about geothermal? I know, you know, obviously there's always the space, right? How much space it takes up? What's the footprint like? What are things like that? Are those challenges that you guys deal with pretty consistently? You know, I think this is one of the biggest benefits of geothermal in general is that the space that we take up is very minimal when compared to the amount of energy that we produce. So some keywords, so very similar to oil and gas industries, we have well pads. Every time we drill a well, we have a, we have a well pad. And somewhere nearby that well pad, we have a power plant where, let's say a well pad is, is one acre, which is probably an overestimate. And a power plant location is five acres. We may have one plant that takes up a total of 10 acres of total disturbance for somewhere around 30 megawatts, or that translates to somewhere around 30,000 homes or small businesses running. And this is a very low megawatt per acre figure compared to other renewables and something that we discuss with a lot of people. You know, solar, of course, depending a little bit on the location, solar uses seven acres per megawatt to generate electricity, to generate one megawatt of electricity, where we would, you know, we use a small fraction of that. I'm curious, from what I can tell, I mean, geothermal has all been based on land. Are any geothermal activities taking place offshore? There is some interest there. In fact, there is some attention that's been thinking about that for some time. You know, some of the technologies that, that oil and gas use for, for deep offshore production have sparked the interest of the idea of putting a geothermal plant in the ocean. <laughs> and there's been some serious thought about that. Anything about geothermal that, you know, we didn't cover during this conversation that you feel like is really relevant that you would want to make sure to leave with the listeners? Yeah, I think there's a couple tidbits I'd throw out there. I've been talking with, let me back up for a second. You know, recently we've, we've been hiring a lot, especially in our you know, technical fields in the company, which by the way, www.ormat.com. If we want everyone, everyone else. If you guys are hiring, we'll definitely make sure to put it in the notes. Cause I know there's a lot of folks in different parts of the industries, energy industries are looking. Absolutely. So I was like, I've talked to them and to give them an aspect of what we do, you know, in the oil industry, you use a lot about, you know, how many barrels are produced per day in a single well. And, you know, that's a common term to judge how well that well is, is working. So yeah, I'll use a term out there. And, and, and honestly, I won't say it's a good or bad well, but let's say a typical oil well or, or a good oil well produces 1,200 barrels a day or 4,000 barrels a day or even 40,000 barrels a day, which we know is a really good well in the oil industry. In our industry, we're producing upwards of 400,000 barrels a day from a single well of geothermal, of geothermal fluid that we use. Wow. 
So our uh, that's a lot of velocity. Yeah. Really yeah. Or that's a lot, a lot of volume. Of yeah. 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 Exactly. I think that's what what grabs a lot of people's interest is the massive amount of production that we use. And and don't forget, I mentioned at the beginning that all of that goes right back into the ground. So not a not a gallon or barrel of it is left on the surface or leaves the or leaves the site. So interesting. I cannot wait to see how this section of the energy industry starts to blossom over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Because, you know, having these resources available to us, having the technology available, seeing new technologies come about and rise, and, you know, hopefully capitalizing on the opportunity to diversify our portfolio so much more in the future, it's going to be really interesting. And, And obviously, you know, looking at it from the standpoint of, energy professionals being able to transfer their skills from one segment of energy to another segment of energy so that, in a sense, so that knowledge doesn't get lost, right? Because when people leave certain parts of the industry, they, you know, the industry loses knowledge. Well, when we look at it as energy as a whole, you know, we don't want that loss of knowledge, right? We don't want people just leaving the industry and then going to, you know, let's say another industry outside of energy, and then that knowledge is lost with them, right? That's a problem that we've had in the energy industry for a long time is, you know, we've had what they call the great crew change over the last few years where people were retiring and leaving and then we've had downturns and, you know, unfortunately we you had more downturns than we'd like to remember as of recent. But I think it's important that energy professionals, you know, take a look at the big picture and say, okay, maybe oil and gas is not where I should be at this moment, but maybe somewhere like geothermal is where I should look and try to pursue some, you know, opportunities there or mix those in so that they don't, you know, they don't lose that knowledge or that knowledge doesn't go to waste, right? And they can sort of repurpose themselves and go go into that part of the energy industry. I was going to say, I can't help but relay as a representative for the whole industry, how excited we are to be able to mingle more on the oil and gas side. I think we've been saying for years that we know there's a tremendous amount that we can learn from what's been happening in the oil and gas industry. And we've been hunting and digging for any opportunity to try to, to bring some of that knowledge over and benefit and for our industry to benefit from it. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity between our two industries. Awesome. What's the best way people can get in touch with you or follow you? Is it Twitter? Is it LinkedIn? How can people follow any of your content that you're putting out on social media? Absolutely. Well, admittedly, I'm terrible at social media, but on LinkedIn, I've got a my LinkedIn profile is, is always active and I would encourage people to follow the company. I mentioned www.ormat.com, which we have social media. I think we run Twitter and LinkedIn and I think that's it. <laughs> as well as, again, our geothermal organization, Geothermal Rising, which is on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and is much more active on the social media front. Awesome. But I'm, of course, always happy to hear from people and answer any questions from anybody that may have them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Josh, that wraps up our episode for today. I don't have any more questions, but I think that we'll definitely be looking forward to talking with you again in the future to get an update on how things are going. And maybe we can talk about some current events in geothermal the next time we speak to each other. But for now, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and take care, Josh. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.